Welcome to the Civil Squared Podcast, where we explore civil discourse and the free exchange of ideas. And now your host of the show, Dr. Jennifer K. Thompson. Welcome and thanks for joining us today. You're about to hear a conversation that I recently had with Dr. Shruti Rajakopalan. And Shruti is many things. She hosts a podcast called The Ideas of India. She writes opinion editorials. Uh, she's been published in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, Real Clear Politics. But she's also an academic. She is, uh, has a PhD in economics. She was an associate professor of economics at SUNY Purchase, as you'll hear in our discussion. Uh, but the reason we're talking to her today is that she is the director of a program called Emergent Ventures India. And Emergent Ventures is a fellowship and grant program at the Mercatus Center, where she works. And the idea is to support very quickly, uh, on a short time frame, ideas that can really change the world. The idea behind Emergent Ventures initially was to jumpstart high-risk, high-reward ideas that advance prosperity, opportunity, and well-being. So we're going to talk about how that applies specifically to India, we're also going to talk about how that structure made it possible for uh, the Mercatus Center to approve fast grants during the COVID pandemic and what, what impact that had on you know, our ability to address the coronavirus in this country and around the world. You will hear throughout our conversation several references to people who Shruti works with, including Tyler Cowen, a name you might recognize. He's another economist at Mercatus, and he's the author of some very popular books, uh, Averages Over, The Complacent Class, The Great Stagnation. All of these are things that you may have heard of. Shruti works closely with Tyler, and we talk at some length about Tyler and his founding of the Emergent Ventures program. Now, Supporting entrepreneurship and high-risk, high-reward ideas may seem a bit off the normal uh, topics that we cover here at Civil Squared, including things about civil discourse and about how to have better conversations. But I think you'll hear throughout this discussion, one, this is just very interesting uh, information about the process of really changing the world and how people with great ideas can apply those ideas to practical problems. But two, I think you're going to hear in our discussion the importance of being willing to put your ideas in front of other people, have them subjected to criticism and feedback, but also a willingness to take risks. And I think these are all things that you will hear as the conversation goes on can be useful in our own conversations. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. talk a little bit about your background. I know we're going to talk about emergent ventures and, you know, all of these things. But when I think about, like, if I was going to describe you to somebody I knew, I'd first start by saying you're like one of the most educated people I've ever met in my life. (laughs) You have to be, you have to be one of the busiest people I know, right? So, Would you mind just talking a little bit about how you come to find yourself today in this space where, as I say, you're very busy, you're hosting a podcast, you're running the Emergent Ventures India program, you're, um, you know, at Mercatus, you're also at New York University in the law school too, and I'm sure many other things. Like, how do you come to find yourself being a person with this many different roles? Okay. Thank you so much. Uh, This is a great question. So just a little bit of background. I grew up in India for the most part. And the way I came to the United States is really through my PhD program. I had visited prior to that as an IHS fellow, actually, you know, part of their summer policy, classical liberal uh, group. Uh, But I really came to the US to live uh, in 2008. And I did my PhD at George Mason University. And, uh, you know, you're familiar with the economics department there. It's uh, some... I really came there to study public choice and Austrian economics. And I was sort of a naive person in India, you know, despite all the education, I got an undergraduate in economics in India, I went to law school in India. But there was really no talk of public choice economics, like nobody did that stuff in India. 
right? But for our audience who might not be familiar with public choice, um, in part because a lot of people in the United States wouldn't be familiar with public choice either. When you talk about public choice economics, what what is that specialization sort of subject in, in so, economics? You know, just to put it plainly, it is to think about politics without romance, right? To think about political actors stripped away from their intentions, no matter how good their intentions are, and to think about the kind of incentives that they have in any given political structure, right? Now, this sounds really obvious, right? To many people in the United States and many people who are reading the newspaper and looking at what's happening in the world around us, it seems glaringly obvious that, duh, of course, politicians are self-interested. But public choice theory is a little bit more than that. It helps you explain perverse outcomes without blaming the intentions of people, but looking two steps deeper, which is really also what economics does, right? It strips away from what people intend, and it looks like unintended patterns and consequences that develop. And I think public choice does the same thing. So I was very interested in incentives of judges, right? Incentives of bureaucrats. I grew up in socialist India, Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. India had not yet liberalized. I remember this is the 30th anniversary of India opening up to markets. And I remember that moment really well. I'm, I'm old enough for that. Um, so no one was really working in the Austrian economics tradition that is studying market choice economics, looking at, you know, socialism as a critical thing, right? Mm. Everyone just assumed that socialism is good yeah. and we're just executing it a little bit badly. You know, if, right, only, right. if we, we could just had, do it the right way, it would be all. Exactly. And yeah. if only our politicians had a little bit more political will and gumption, yeah. right? So all the focus in India is on two parts, right? One is the benevolence of political actors and the other is the omniscience of political actors, which is political actors, whether it's judges and politicians, they actually know what the problems are and they know how to solve them. Right. right. And right. economics is a great way of stripping both these away because right. it talks about how, you know, the question there are knowledge problems. Right. And this is the famous socialist calculation debate or the socialist critique that Hayek and Mises came up with, that it's not about the intentions of the bureaucrat. Nobody in the world knows how much steel India needs to produce in a year. Right. Right. Even it if you had be better methods, even if you knew all kinds of detailed information, you still wouldn't be able to coordinate that information. Exactly. As well as prices and markets. Yeah. And, you know, simple things, right? So the central plan has something like we need to have, you know, 20,000 bicycles. India needs 20,000 bicycles this year. So first of all, there were always shortages, right? Because yeah. they never knew how many bicycles they really needed. Now, how does anyone get to know how many bicycles are needed or right. required in a market? And Hayek's point is nobody does. Right. right. It's right. a beautiful and careful dance that takes place across the world and across time of different people buying and selling. And the price is the signal and the price is the knowledge and the price is the incentive. It's all three things simultaneously. Right. So yeah. it's an incentive that, you know, when prices are rising, you try and find substitutes for bicycles and maybe some parts so that you can produce appropriately, right? It's also a signal that, hey, prices are rising, which means, you know, the steel that you need for the spokes have many other alternative uses, right? Or if the prices of bicycles are rising, you know, more people want bicycles, which right. means a smart entrepreneur is going to come in and say, you know what, I really should set up a bicycle factory. Now, if you strip all this away and you say there is one particular person in the Ministry of Transportation or the Ministry of Public works who's going to figure this steel, out yeah. who's going to figure this out it can't be done so it's really not the fault of the people except that they were trapped in a terrible system right so yeah now, so you're saying like from your background that was kind of the point of view you just need better ministers better information or whatever and so yeah. to study something different you yeah. know you came and studied at George Mason and yes and and you know there it, I, I was already interested in public choice economics in India someone had introduced me to Hayek and uh, you know, someone had given me uh, James Buchanan and Gordon Tullock's Calculus of Consent. Right, and I had to make right, Xerox right. copies. These books weren't even available easily. And at that time, it was like, there, there weren't too many people to talk to about this. The internet was pretty nascent. There were some yeah. bloggers, yeah. you know, but it's not like there was this huge community of, you know, people in India working on these things or reading these books. So, Everything I found online pointed me to the United States, and yeah. a lot of it came from George Mason University. Yeah, right. So I, so I think I think this and is, I said this is a good place to go. Yeah, and that makes total sense. And I think it's super interesting in the sense that 
you know, a lot of the people who will be listening to this podcast are people who work in, in business in some manner or another, right? And there is this almost natural acceptance of the power of markets and the creation of markets. And it's funny in thinking about this. So you're experiencing, well, nobody was thinking that way. I wanted to be exposed to that. I wanted to talk more about that with other people. In a way, if we think about, um, and I'm going to ask you to sort of explain the the history a little bit of um, emergent ventures, you know, in part, emergent ventures is a response to, even though in the United States, we accept the power of markets, um, you know, we may have questions about capitalism, all these other things, we still see the value of business and people, you know, individually start businesses, they create wealth, all these different things. But I know Tyler Cowan, who's at George Mason, who started Emergent Ventures, said, yeah, but look, things are kind of stagnant, right? Things aren't really continuing to grow and we're not seeing the kind of innovation and entrepreneurship. Is that that a fair assessment of where Emergent Ventures started? Yes. So I, you know, this is now secondhand, uh, you know, information because Tyler would be a better person to speak about why he started this. But from various conversations I've had and everything he's written on it, uh, I mean, Tyler's worked a lot on progress studies and how, you know, there has been, as you mentioned, a stagnation in innovation and so on. Uh, a second part of Tyler's background is also, I mean, he's an excellent economist. So he understands trade-offs. He yep. understands that if there is a very high cost or a very costly application process to fund the innovation, you're going to get less of it. Or the kinds of people you're going to get are the people who know how to write good grants right not necessarily do something great yeah exactly there is some overlap between people who write great grants and people who do great work right but there are a lot of people doing great work who are slipping through the cracks right that's the second the third is a very large focus when it comes to philanthropic effort is we're spending someone else's money. So we need to be extremely Mm -hmm. careful about it. And we need to vet every application to death so that not a penny goes wasted, right? That's sort of the attitude. However, there's a huge cost to that, right? I'm not saying just, you know, throw away philanthropic funding like willy nilly, but there is a trade-off between false positives and false negatives, right? So you may fund some duds if you move too quickly, but on the other hand, if you move too slowly and you vet everything to death, you may not fund some really great applications, right? Right, So which side of the spectrum are you on? Everyone needs to be somewhere on the spectrum. And I think what, uh, you know, brought about Emergent Ventures is most institutions are on one end of the spectrum where they want to avoid duds at all cost, right? They don't want to take too many risks. Right, right, right. And this is where the public choice economist in Tyler also comes out, which is he understands bureaucracy. He understands the incentives of bureaucracy, right? If you, if someone is like, if an application that you funded is just terrible and went nowhere and they ran away with the money or they were scamsters or some something very extreme, then you're going to get pulled up for it. Nobody got pulled up for not funding something that could have been a great bet because it never even pops up in the radar and nobody gets fired for you know betting on very safe things you get a great application from Yale University nobody is going to get sacked for funding that right so yeah I mean that makes sense and so like this is now this is before you were there but this is like 2018 and we'll link in the show notes to some of the information originally about emergent ventures But the idea was to say um, Mercatus uh, had started with something like a million dollars, I think, right? And the idea was going to be to fund uh, through grants or I think it was primarily through grants and fellowships. Grants or fellowships, yeah. yeah. Uh, Ideas, really, I mean, I know this sounds kind of, you know, maybe corny or whatever, but ideas that would change the world, right? Yeah, ideas that would make, absolutely. really would make the world better, that would change the world. Um, and I know we're all now kind of familiar with this moonshot thing, uh, the idea of the moonshot from, you know, the COVID vaccine, but this is 2018 and Tyler's talking about, let's, let's see if we can find a way to cut through all the things you just described, right? Yeah. And fund some really amazing ideas and bring your amazing ideas to us. Yeah. 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 
Absolutely. That's, I mean, I couldn't have said it better than that, Jennifer. So he's really thinking about high risk, high reward ideas, high risk, high reward, because, you know, there is a bias against that in very traditional institutional philanthropic funding. So, you know, there's a gap in the market that we try to fill in one sense, right? Uh, So that's one part of it. And the second is, you know, some of the really, I mean, it's obvious to everybody that let's say air pollution is a huge problem in developing countries. Right. But it is sometimes such a big problem that only like, you know, top scientists in like top universities even get a shot at working on it because they come with credentials and no one else will get funded. Right. Right, A young 22 year old kid who's trying to make a low cost air purifier can't even get through the door. Yeah, in most yeah. places. And this is not a crazy example. This is one of our best, you know, I mean, I think all emerging ventures grantees are fantastic, but I think this is one of the best ideas we funded. We have a very bright young man. His name is Angad Daryani. He has created, a, he's a graduate at Georgia Tech. He's an engineer and he's really designed bottom up, right? With literally sleeping on people's couch and borrowing money and eating like, you know, ramen noodles sort of, you know, for right, four right. to five years. And he's created an incredible product, right? It's a low cost outdoor air purifier that requires, that's filterless, requires very little maintenance, but he needed money to make his prototype more sophisticated. And then he needed sure. some money to get pilot data yeah. to actually prove to other people that you need to invest in this product. Now, he had a lot of interest coming his way uh, for people to make it a very high end thing. You know how like posh Indians and Chinese and South Asians can have a really expensive gadget in their balconies and mm-hmm. patios. Mm-hmm. But he said, I want to do this at a very low cost for a very large number of people. And there's no one to fund it. Yeah, right? that's not and as it's appealing not that to much money. Who's exactly. going to try and, and make a bunch of money off of it. Yeah. Exactly. So even in the market, the people who'd get interested in that at scale are going to come in at a much later stage. They need a lot more data. It's a very, very high risk proposition. So you need something in between. It's not like the market didn't recognize the value of what he was doing. It's just he was slipping through the cracks. He came to us. We funded him. It's not that much money when you think about the kinds of things you know we spend on in the United States. It's very little money. You know, the uh, average size of the grant in India sometimes is just a few thousand dollars, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. To really young people. This was a slightly bigger grant and um, he's done really well. He's got great results. Now he's getting a lot of interest from angel investors and venture capitalists and things like that. And I'm so thrilled about it. But That's this awesome. is a very classic idea where trying to mitigate air pollution, even by one or 2% in South Asia and China is according to me going to bring about such a magical change in the world, such, you know, great change in health outcomes to the poorest people in the world, right? If those people can live even four to five years longer and live a happier, better life with better functioning lungs, if those kids can go to school and be more productive because they're not struggling with the, you know, impact of air pollution, can you imagine the value of that, right? Well, right. This is what I mean by moonshot. Yeah, and if it's not going to happen because the bureaucracy of- the the and also the incentives and everything else that are associated with it. So this exactly. is the kind of thing that by providing uh, emergent ventures, providing funds for this, providing know-how, background, uh, and support, really it does change the world. And I think you know we have I mentioned already that in our audience we have people who are engaged in business in all kinds of ways. But part of the reason we wanted to talk to you about this, I think, is because you know, we're, we're constantly thinking about how people take ideas uh, as a result of discussion, as a result of conversation, as a result of, uh, you know, having conflict sometimes with people, you know, having someone, we just, you know, had an issue in the newsletter about um, business incubators and, and going into something and saying, I have really good ideas. And then having people tell you, just ask you one simple question you haven't thought about, right? And give yeah. you sort of this new way of looking at things. So, so Emergent Ventures starts in 2018 and it's, it's not constrained, I guess, probably to the United States, yeah. but it becomes very quickly clear, it sounds like, that there were, um, there were other circumstances that would require some you know, focused funding because you actually won an Emergent Grant. Uh, emergent yes, 
So I'm an Emergent Ventures fellow. I was brought to Mercatus. So, you know, going back to the background question, after I finished my PhD, I had a fellowship at NYU. Uh, I uh, became a professor at State University of New York at, at Purchase College. I taught economics for six, seven years, uh, you know, and I got tenure. I did all, I, I thought I was going to be an academic for the rest of my life. Right. And that is when Tyler said, hey, we're thinking of doing, you know, more focused work on India at the Mercatus Center, you know, Emergent Ventures is part of that. So would you like to come on board? And I was like, you know, I mean, this is a no brainer. Of course, I would yeah. have to come on board. So initially, I was brought in and I still do a lot of things that I was initially brought in for. As you mentioned, uh, I do the podcast. It's mm -hmm. called Ideas of India. Uh, it's really a deep dive conversation with different kinds of scholarship and, you know, really different ideas of India. Uh, the second is I still write, you know, peer reviewed journal articles and book chapters and things like that. Uh, I write newspaper columns. Mm -hmm. uh, I uh, work with some students, you know, at the Mercatus Center and outside who are working, you know, their graduate work or their doctoral work on India. So those sorts of things, very academic, you know, sure. sort of yeah. part of my life that's sort of still going on. And then Emergent Ventures came on later after I joined Mercatus, maybe a month or change in. And what Tyler had observed, and you know, these are really emergent processes, right? You mm -hmm. can't predict this when you start a new program, yeah. what Tyler noticed was consistently, he got great applications from India. And he said, there's something going on here. I'm getting really good applications from India. Now, one part of it is, of course, English and, you know, the language barrier is reduced. The application form is in English. All of us who evaluate it are, you know, really English fluent, right? So maybe right. there are some countries where people are not yet looking at emergent ventures as a venue or maybe not even know about it. But in India, people started, you know, taking notice. The second thing, uh, and, you know, this has also come about now with, you know, having done this for a year and a half myself, a lot of the people we fund in India would have never needed funding in the United States because they would have ended up in gifted programs at high schools. Uh -huh. They would have ended up in incubators at MIT and, you know, their local universities or business incubators that you mentioned, yeah. right? Their research would have been funded. Their talent would have been scouted. They would have been picked up because America is fantastic at scouting talent right? Can they do better? Uh, yeah. Yes, always. But developed countries tend to have great educational and other infrastructure to scout talent. Now in India, that infrastructure is either missing or broken. Uh -huh. But that also means that you get people who are way more talented than in many other parts of the world, way better applications. Uh, and it's really low hanging fruit for us. So we're like, yeah. wow, you know, so Something like what, you know, Unger developed, which is the outdoor air purifier. I don't think anyone who's working on that in the United States would have come to Emergent Ventures, right? I have a feeling there would have been 20 incubator programs. Someone at Silicon Valley might have picked it up and, you know, so on and so forth. Yeah. I think there is, so there's something very interesting going on in India right now. The talent is there. We are trying to scout for that talent. Some of, you know, and we're trying to make those networks. So we end up getting better. So, you know, you sort of get yeah. more bang for your buck. So that's one part of it. The second yeah. is we're in the business of moonshots. And frankly, anything that is done in India, the smallest thing yeah. has an impact on such a large number of people. It's so outsized that I would say Emergent Ventures India itself is our moonshot. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. that by itself is the big impact idea. And the third is, like you said, ideas don't come out in a vacuum. Right. right. They need to be incubated. They need connections. So the other part of what Emergent Ventures does is we've created a community of grantees and winners. We, you know, before the pandemic, we would get them together for a couple of days, you know, a weekend or so in D.C. We'd get them all in a room. Great things would happen when they speak with each other. Yes. Uh, we hope to do that once again post pandemic. But we're trying to connect all these winners, they're very smart. We expect exciting things to happen. And both Tyler and I also really go out and leverage our personal networks mm -hmm. to connect all these, you know, great young talent with other people who will take that more seriously. Mm -hmm. Very often, you know, I've had, I've had students applying who are 16, 17 years old, right? Their parents need to sign the financial documents because they right. can't even accept money on their own or some, some crazy thing like that. And in these cases, uh, what is like, what is really remarkable to me is we catch them like so young, right? Yeah. But we're also able to help them be taken seriously by other people. 
Yeah, yeah. No one is going to respond well to a 16-year-old just writing an email. But the person who directs Emergent Ventures India, they will at least respond to the email. Right, right. right. So even when it's cold calling and not really leveraging my network, I feel like people are just more likely to Google me and take me more seriously. Yeah. So we plug them in. And you know, the, the response I get when we give grants the number one response it's you know of course there's a lot of gratitude and they say yeah. thank you but the number one thing is you believe us yeah you really believe us like it's, you're it's taking a, us seriously yep, because a yep. lot of people just discount what young people say yeah and so it's so a, it's a think, vote of confidence and yes a willingness to invest in the idea which i i think people should not underestimate the significance Absolutely. of that in success right you know you Absolutely. can have a great idea but if nobody else wants to listen to it or invest in it, then yeah. you're just out there by yourself. And I think it's also, I maybe have skipped over this early on. We talked about bureaucracy and we talked about the difficulty of getting funding for things. It's not just that you're trying to make this easier. I mean, this is pretty revolutionary in a way. I mean, you're reviewing these applications yeah. very quickly. Like, yeah, three days, four days sometimes. So, and, you know, yeah. an application hits the system in three to four days, you know, we'll take a look at it and uh, we'll schedule a call. Typically the scheduling of the call is the biggest delay, to yeah. be honest, yeah. Yeah. because we have calendars and we have time difference and things like that to match. Once the call is scheduled, it's a simple yes or no for India from me and for the rest of the world from Tyler. It's really, you know, straightforward in that sense. And, um, uh, one thing I will say about that, you know, not to just make everything seem hunky-dory. Mm. Uh, the incredible thing about Emergent Ventures is it's a very quick yes or no. There's no bureaucracy. There's virtually no overhead. Yeah. On the other hand, these models are not easily scalable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? You need the right person to work in each sector or each country whose judgment one can trust, right? Who yeah. knows and buys into the idea and is able to work along those lines, yeah. right? So I... Just want to put it out there. I understand why very large philanthropic institutions are not able to do what we are doing, yeah. right? It would be anarchy there. On the other hand, if we can show the success of what we're doing, maybe they will take two, three steps towards us. Well, and right? I think, yeah, I mean, I and think that would also be a huge improvement. I think it lowers the risk for, yeah. for a bigger funder. And it, you know, whether people in our audience um, are familiar with this or not, but it's very true, you know, not just the amount of time and review and everything that grant making requires, but there is a sense, as you said, about taking risks um, and how that impacts your ability to do things going forward. So that if you've got somebody, especially, you know, uh, an organization like Mercatus and people like you and Tyler, uh, who've looked at this, who've vetted it, who've invested already, that's going to be a huge signal yeah. to some of these other organizations who really do have to say, look, you know, it's great to say that you can do this one thing, but how is it scalable? Because we're going to need to show our board of directors or yeah. our donors or our, you know, founders that there really is a huge impact. And not every idea starts out at scale. I mean, when you think about education, for instance, you talked about your own background and getting, um, you know, fellowships and exposure to other thinkers. If you think about, well, we're going to scale education, and if we just have the right inputs, we can get, you know, thousands and thousands of, of shrewdies, right? Like, it doesn't work that way. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that eventually, at some point in your career, you will have an impact at scale. Yeah. So I love the idea that you you guys are investing in these things and saying, one, let's lower the let's lower the cost for other people who might bring funding later. But two, let's recognize that not everything starts out, even if it is a moonshot idea, not everything starts out in a position where it's going to affect five million, six million people. But that doesn't mean absolutely. it won't eventually. Absolutely. No, you're yeah. absolutely right. And, you know, here I'll say one more thing about incentives. You cannot get someone like me working on emergent ventures if they are not backed by someone like Tyler. Yeah, right. Yeah. If everyone, if only everyone had a boss who told them, hey, if you're if all your applications are working, you're not taking big enough risks. We you should have duds. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Don't yeah. be afraid of failure. Don't be afraid of going out there and supporting something which seems unlikely. But if it worked out, it would be great. 
how often do you hear people in leadership positions even say words like this it just almost never happens right oh, yeah. so i i know that tyler is singular not just on this margin but he's he's a, a very singular scholar right and yeah, intellectual yeah. so i don't expect everyone to you know act like tyler does but just reducing the the extreme risk aversion right yeah, yeah. and changing the incentives goes a long way so i know that i'm never going to be pulled up if someone fails very badly at emergent ventures and that gives me a lot of courage to help people find wings and support their ideas now this doesn't mean that you know we don't exercise good judgment or we don't no, really sure. think yeah. about the ideas because you know resources are scarce and there are lots of people who could potentially benefit from what we're doing but i think it's it's a point of view that that could really go a long way you're saying, look, we understand we're going to have some failures. We're accepting yeah. that. So we're going to, we're going to take some risks. And as you said, you know, and I've heard Tyler say this too, if we aren't failing, then we're not taking enough risks. Right. Yeah. So I want to, um, so this is just, I mean, I, 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 I hope in listening to this, people understand how remarkable this is in, in certainly for a university setting in a nonprofit setting. Um, even though I know not all of your uh, the, the awards are given to people who are running nonprofits. I mean, you're, you're okay with people making a profit, which we is would thing, love right? for them to make a profit, <laughs> honestly. Um, but I want to talk about how this changes a little, it changes significantly really in 2020 when, you know, Emergent Ventures is running. I know Emergent Ventures India comes along um, early in 2020. Is that right? Yeah. 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 Late and then, 2019, early 2020, we started, okay. you know, putting it all together. Yeah. And then all of a sudden the whole world changes for all of us and the coronavirus COVID-19 comes along and then, uh, emergent ventures and, and you guys start saying, let's, let's take a look at fast grants. You're already working on a faster turnaround than most places would be for funding these kinds of ideas, these moonshot ideas. But now with COVID, there is this um, willingness to pull this money together. And I think you raised like $50 million or something. Yeah, yeah. So here, I just want to point out that I am now speaking about fast grants, and this yeah, yeah. is something that is entirely what Tyler and Patrick Collison Patrick and those Collison, guys did, right? I have, yes. So I've had a ringside view to fast yeah. grants, which, and I'm incredibly proud that Mercatus was able to do this, uh, but I was not personally involved in it. So, right. you know, this is a, right. a, a sort of a one degree. But you saw it. Version. You saw it. I saw Closer it. Closer than exactly. most of us would have. So, absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, you're absolutely right. You know, one is, Tyler had already worked on emergent ventures, so he knew the value of moving really quickly. And second, the Mercator Center already had an infrastructure to do this, right? Yeah. We yeah. were already doing this with virtually no overhead, so very low cost. Now, Tyler and Patrick Collison, they, I mean, Patrick Collison is really running one of the biggest fintech businesses in the world, yep. right? Stripe, I mean, which is payment processing. Stripe. Yeah, yep. exactly. And this, I mean, he is also an incredible public intellectual aside from being an entrepreneur and, you know, uh, creating wealth and value for the world. But he's also someone who really understand, understood the value of speed, right? Yeah. Moving yeah. really quickly in the middle of a pandemic. And if there's any time one needs to move quickly, it is during pandemics or, you know, during World War II that the United States did so much. So everyone kind of understood the urgency of the situation. And I think Patrick and Tyler were kind of surprised that they didn't see this kind of urgency mm -hmm. in other other areas, right? You weren't seeing politicians and you weren't seeing other philanthropic organizations just say, hey, we're going to move really quickly. So that, yeah. you know, so one is there's a gap there. Mm -hmm. uh, the second part was that they uh, really, you know, put their might and money behind it, right? Uh, so they, you know, first of all, opened their checkbooks and said, we're going to do this very, very quickly. You know, just the moment they announced that they're going to do something like this, they have a very very wealthy people, right? Yeah. For whom there are lots of alternate uses for their money who immediately gave, uh, you know, huge donations to fast runs, sometimes seven figure donations, yeah. right? Uh, in a matter of a couple of weeks, I think, or maybe a few weeks, they raised $50 million, which is which also is incredible. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, I think the idea of fast runs was hatched in a matter of one or two hours, like literally the speed at which, I don't know if you've all heard Patrick and Tyler speak, it's like, 
you know, even the speed at which these two gentlemen think and interact is, is quite exceptional. So I'm not surprised that it just took a couple of hours and this whole thing came about, right? Yeah, and I can yeah. send you, uh, you know, uh, one year in, they've written a really nice piece on what they learned from doing fast. Oh, I saw you know, I'll, I'll send it oh, to yeah. you. Uh, and I think your listeners will get a lot out of it. And yeah, we'll now definitely. what they originally expected was, hey, there are going to be all these big, you know, well-credentialed people from these top-ranking institutions. They're obviously going to get funded. No mm-hmm. question. Mm-hmm. What we can get, the way I think about Emerging Ventures, is we can get some great talent for cheap, right? Yeah. Yeah. The people who don't have access to these institutions and they can apply to fast grants and they can work on these things. And, you know, whether it is testing in the middle of a pandemic, whether it's vaccinations, whether it is treatment protocols, you know, whatever it is, whether it's better PP equipment, Let's fund this and let's get it going. Now, one of the most surprising things about Fast Runs, in the first one week, they got 4,000 applications. Yeah. Uh, I think our servers may have had like a moment when they wobbled because <laughs> of the IT number people of were probably. <laughs> yeah. So they were just, and you know, these were not like spam. Like it's not mm-hmm. like we really got 2,000 applications. The other 2,000 were like random, just junk, you yeah. know, e- emails from Nigerian princes asking for Right, money. right, no. right, right. There was virtually no spam. There were really 4,000 legit applications. It was very quick, like the Emergent Ventures, couple of pages and, you know, followed up by peer review. They had a team of really young, early stage researchers and professors and academics who did the peer review. Unlike a lot of other institutions, like, you know, the government institutions, which require maybe 10 to 20 people to review each application. This was three people. It didn't require unanimity, right? They also recognize that moving along very quickly is going to enable, you know, good outcomes very quickly. Not to say every single application will be successful, but thanks to Emergent Ventures, we had already become comfortable with the idea that, you know, we're not going to try and minimize failure. I think that's really important to say, well, we already were accustomed to that. We were already comfortable with that idea in let's call them normal times, right? Yeah. So that when when a crisis comes along, you've already got that habit in place and now yeah. it really matters to be able to. Exactly. And, you know, so we had the infrastructure, we had the right ideas, we had the right people. And the first round of grants were given out in 48 hours. Which is just amazing. Right? Amazing. Everyone worked through the weekend. I mean, there was no weekend in the pandemic. I mean, when Fast Grants kicked off, and I, I, like I said, I got a ringside view because the people who were working on the back end of Emergent Ventures were also working on the yeah. back end of Fast Runs. And, you know, it just, even simple things like getting people's financial information, sending the funding, making sure you don't have spelling mistakes when you're wiring. Right, right. You know, everything requires a level of detail. So it's not like all this just happens by hand-waving and magic. So there is an infrastructure required to do it. But thankfully, we have incredibly low overhead. Mm-hmm. I think the Fast Run like overhead- Exactly. It was, yeah. you know, I think it started out at, as 1% for emergent ventures and ended up at something like 3%. And, you know, uh, some of the applications which needed more scrutiny, which required other researchers to get involved and vetted, that took, you know, a few more days. It yeah. Only the first round was in 48 hours, but it just moved incredibly fast. And the fast grants team just worked yeah, you know, round the clock, they didn't know when it was night or day. Uh, and they got this done. I think they've gone over about 6000 applications, yeah. they've given away $50 million. And uh, a few surprising things that came out of this was, it wasn't just, you know, as Tyler and Patrick had thought that, oh, you know, the people from the top institutions are going to get everything. And this is really the next level of, you know, the, right. other, the hidden gem kind of scrappy you know, people. Exactly. Got, yeah. the, And, you know, the underpriced, right? People who are not so obvious and aren't getting picked up. They got surprising results because top well-credentialed people were applying for this. One of the earliest successes of Fast Runs, you know, I'll just take a moment to talk about it. Mm -hmm. This was the spit test that enabled the NBA bubble, right? right? Uh, It's the spit test called Saliva Direct. This is a team at Yale, okay? At the Yale School of Public Health. Yeah, and they came to the Fast Grants program. Yeah, Yeah. Yale has one of the largest endowments, right? Mm -hmm. It's the school of public health and we're in the Mm -hmm. middle of a pandemic and they couldn't get funding from their home institutions and 
most people one year in, I think two thirds of the applicants or some really outrageous number like that say that they wouldn't have been able to do the project if fast trans hadn't funded them. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, now if you think about this as a systemic issue in the United States, you can imagine how many $20 bills are being left on the sidewalk because we cannot get the ideas plus the bureaucracy plus the infrastructure together. The talent exists. The great ideas exist. America has the best researchers. They all mobilize. They all work nonstop during the pandemic, but they do need support. And if you're going to take a year to do a, you know, national science fund or, you know, endowment review, uh, well, we know one year in how many million people are dead across the world because yeah. of you know, COVID-19. So the, the pandemic really shows that there are just very real costs. I mean, it's, it's both being willing to take risks to accept failure. But I mean, you, I can imagine somebody listening to this and saying, oh, well, yeah, you're at a university. You can do that, you know, blah, blah, blah. Well, one, you just showed one of the, you know, most prestigious universities in the country wasn't willing to take those risks. But not just that. I mean, here come people from the for-profit world. You mentioned Patrick Collison, right? But also other people who donated. And I know in the, and we'll share the um, lessons learned from that. I think in there, Patrick and Tyler say something like, we had people write us seven-figure checks. We didn't even talk to them on the phone, right? Yeah, exactly. People coming from everywhere saying, look, I get it. This is bad news. And I want to have an impact now. And I'm willing to put my money out there and I'm willing to buy into your model, which is, hey, we're going to move really quickly. We're going to have some failures. But if we don't move quickly, and again, it's not just, you know, we'll review it in 48 hours. It's we're going to review it and then we're going to get the money in your hands within a day. Just a few more days, you know, I mean, financial transactions, depending on the institution that is receiving money or the individuals, it just takes a little bit of time. Uh, wiring money to India, for instance, takes a while and a fair bit of paperwork, Mm. but we're still counting in days. We're not counting in weeks and months, right? So I think that is something incredible. And also, you know, I want to talk for failure about failure for just a minute, Mm -hmm. uh, if you permit me. Now, it's not clear to me, uh, you know, how we think of failure is the appropriate way. Now, let's say we give someone a grant for, you know, some kind of, you know, let's say they were supposed to collect, you know, data on COVID or they were supposed to, you know, create a new gadget that measured air pollution or something like that, right? Now, let's say they weren't actually able to do what they said in the application, right? They weren't able to collect that data. The data weren't forthcoming or, you know, they couldn't make the prototype, whatever it is. If they became better at what they were doing through that journey, It's not as much of a failure as you originally think. If that journey helped them Mm -hmm. make it better the next time or realize that this was a dead end, but I need to do this differently the next time, that is again, according to me, not a failure, right? But the real success is the three, four, 500 papers that are going to come out in the next decade from this particular project. So both evaluating success and evaluating failure is not as simple as we make it sound in these annual reports and deliverables and impact analysis. I mean, I know all these philanthropic organizations mean well, and they're trying to have accountability. But I just want to point out to the listeners who might be donors or receivers, that it's so difficult to evaluate that. I mean, I do this on a daily basis. And if you asked me to point out three failures and three successes, I would struggle. And it's not just because it's hard to choose between your babies. I mean, I would just right. really struggle because I wouldn't understand what the parameters of success or failure are. Well, right? and it's, yeah. And I think almost to come full circle back to what drew you to your studies here in the United States and thinking about public choice and everything, I think it's really important to keep in mind, because as you're saying this, I'm thinking about my own career and people I've worked with and, you know, to, to assume even in the course of trying to be uh, more open-minded about the way we, we support innovation and entrepreneurship and all that, we still can't, it's not a linear process that we can say, okay, if we just start with step A, B, like we just make it faster or we just make yeah. you know fewer reviewers, we still don't necessarily know how that's gonna end, right? Yeah. And sometimes, the biggest successes come from things we didn't even intend, right? Like something else, 
I come to you and I say, well, what I really want to do, Shruti, is I want to do X, Y, or Z. And you give me the money to do that. And in the process, I don't actually do X, Y, or Z, but all of a sudden I saw an opportunity for this other thing that wasn't even in my mind at first. Now, how can you say that's not a success? Exactly. I want to do a couple of things just before we go. One, I want to, I want to make sure that I give you an opportunity. Um, I mentioned uh, earlier the podcast, the ideas of India. I want to, and, and we've talked about your own background and everything else, but I just want to make sure and give you an opportunity to, to just talk for a minute or two about how important for people who really don't have a sense of this, who don't, who haven't been to India, who haven't got any idea of what the kind of thing you're doing with Emergent Ventures India can can impact and why it's so important and valuable that people are willing to take risks, they're willing to um, support what you're doing, like the kind of change that can occur as a result of that. Absolutely. Thank you for that opportunity. So, you know, I think about change on three different dimensions. Mm -hmm. One is ideas, right? The idea that India can open up the global markets. That idea 30 years ago with a little bit of sensible policy implementation has lifted 270 million people out of poverty. That's the entire United States almost, right? That is an extraordinary achievement in the modern world. So one part of it is ideas. The second part, and that's where I think most of my work as an academic and a writer and a scholar comes in. I'm really working on the ideas of how do we think about, I mean, it could be a really specific thing, like the incentives of judges on which, you know, I did a lot of my doctoral work, uh, or it could be like a really big thing, which is, you know, property rights, which is my next book project. Uh, Mm -hmm. And, you know, eminent domain, how we think about property in India. So I think that's one part. The second is policy outcomes. I work at the Mercatus Center, which is, you know, one of the most, uh, you know, well-respected think tanks in the DC area. And we have had policy successes. You know, we worked on some small things, which in India end up being a moonshot, right? So Mm -hmm. something like, uh, can we get customs and tariffs suspended for importing protective equipment and masks early during COVID? You know, this is last year, April, last year, March. That has an impact. Right. Me writing about how we need to have vaccines and how we need to have, you know, big advanced contract commitments for vaccines. These things, if they move the policy needle, I'm not saying they always do. They have a very large impact because now we're talking 1.35 billion people. I mean, the world witnessed the second COVID wave in India with horror. I just want to put this out there, even for those people who are not interested in India per se, a rich, prosperous, free India is going to make their life better mm. because it's going to have lots of smart people who work on yeah. problems that they are interested in solving. A poor India with bad healthcare, with air pollution, with low life expectancy and low GDP per capita and lots of you know, political problems and religious fractionalization is bad news for them. Mm. Yeah. If India is not rich enough and governed well enough to contain COVID, the Delta variant is going to show up at their doorstep, you know, a month later, travel ban or no travel ban, right? So this is something to keep in mind. So that's the policy part. And the third is the entrepreneurship, Mm -hmm. right? And that's where I think that's the third part. So EV supports all three, but I think the, the first two parts of my work are not really about entrepreneurship. If you can't reform the state, you can do some things that make the state less relevant as a constraint or make it irrelevant almost, right? So like Uber's made the state control over taxi cab cartels, you know, how the government tried to to keep that cartel together. It made it irrelevant, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, for 40 years, you couldn't do anything about the New York City taxi cab cartel. And then Uber comes in and five years later, it's over, right? Now the cartel is no longer the relevant constraint. So technology can make that happen, right? Yes, I would love to see the government of India and the people of India have better property rights, better governance systems so that there's lesser, you know, externalities like air pollution or pandemics. But if that cannot happen, I love that I have a very bright young person in Angad who yeah. is working on mitigating air pollution, right? Yeah. That's that's how I think about it. So, you know, ideas, institutions and policy and entrepreneurship. And I think, you know, so that's sort of the way I think about the world. And I have a deep personal connection to India. I was raised there. It's where most of my research is nested. So I think I'm the best person to work on. I mean, I don't, it's not that I don't think other places in the world don't merit this kind of effort. It's just, I know a lot that's what less you know. on how yeah. to exactly to contribute. So in my happy world, 
there would be an EV India and yeah. there would be an EV Vietnam, yeah. right? And there would be an yeah. EV Brazil yeah. and an EV yeah. South Africa. There would be an EV for every country and we would be, you know, scouting talent across the world. And that would be my really happy place. Maybe uh, that will happen. Maybe, that, maybe will. that will happen and you have great listeners and, you know, people will come together and support our effort. But EV India is also my personal moonshot, sure. right? I mean, Absolutely. I've literally bet my career on it, yeah. <laughs> on, on, on India. And so India growing rich, prosperous and having greater liberty for its citizens. I think that's sort of like the project of my life. Oh, well, I'm glad you're doing it. And I'm glad you took that bet because I mean, it's just, if there's no way listening to this, that people can't hear that passion and that enthusiasm and that commitment. And so just thank you for doing it. Thank you for taking that risk, but also thank you for sharing with us so that other people can learn from it. And let's hope maybe somebody out there says, you know what, that's a great idea. I want to fund, you know, Emergent Ventures Vietnam, you know? Yeah, that would be great. So, you know, for all your listeners, if you know really talented people across the world who should be applying to us, please ask them to go to Emergent Ventures at Mercatus. It's a very quick form. If you want to donate, once again, you can go to the donate page at Mercatus or write to me and Tyler. And if you just want to support us, not in these two directions, spread the word. Yeah, absolutely. And we will we will link to all of this in the show notes so that people can easily share that content and spread the word. Thank you so much, Rudy. Thank you so much, Jennifer. You're doing something really wonderful. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I am sure you can tell from listening to Shruti that she is somebody who is always, always thinking about how to apply great ideas to the problems in the world around her. And I'm just really glad there's somebody like Shruti doing that, that Emergent Ventures and Emergent Ventures India and the FAST Grants program at Mercatus exists. I hope you'll check all of that out in the show notes, and I hope you will share it with other people so that they know about this as well. What I take away from this conversation, apart from that information, is a point that I think Shruti made several times, and that has to do with risk and failure. Shruti pointed out uh, that in order to achieve some of these moonshot ideas, we have to be willing to take risks. And when we take risks, we have to build into our expectations the likelihood, not just the possibility, but the likelihood of failure. I think that's important for all of us to remember because for the most part, I think it's human nature to want to move a little more slowly, to be cautious, to be careful, and to test things out and make sure they work before we take bigger risks. As Shruti says, uh, if we're not failing, we're probably not taking enough risks, and we're certainly not going to achieve change on the scale and on the level that we talked about in this conversation. I think that's related to our own conversations with one another about important ideas, about ideas that will change the world, about ideas that will change our communities. We have to be prepared, even in those discussions of those ideas, to be willing to take some risks and to build into our risk-taking ventures an expectation that sometimes we will fail. I think that's hard for us to do, and the thing I will take away from this conversation and remember as I'm having discussions about really important ideas, whether it's the economy, whether it's politics, is that I have to be willing to take some risks if I want to see change. I hope that you enjoyed the conversation. I hope that you will take a moment yourself to rate and review the program wherever you listen to this podcast. It will help get the information out to other people, just like we asked with Shruti's programs. And we want more people to know about Civil Squared so that they can hear great things like ideas about Emergent Ventures and Shruti's work. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Civil Squared podcast, where we explore civil discourse and the free exchange of ideas. We'll see you next time for another conversation.